This week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by CaseFleet. What's more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? That's where CaseFleet comes in. CaseFleet's revolutionary and easy-to-use software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search, and built-in document review, CaseFleet makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Uh, how you guys doing? Feeling pretty good. Uh, getting back out in the world a little more than I was. We got, yeah. got a lot of stuff to talk about in today's show, so I'm upbeat, guys. I yeah. might pass away from allergies, but uh, other than that, <laughs> I'm 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 fine. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about the uh, sort of allergies as false alarm. Like you don't know how to <laughs> right. process other sort of you know head cold type of uh, symptoms that aren't COVID. Um, but uh, in any case, um, yeah, it is a good show. Amber, I understand you had an interesting talk with uh, Strickler today. How did that go? I did. One of our returning champion guests yeah, that we've had on many times, <laughs> Andrew Strickler. He's one of our legal ethics experts. Really the reigning champion of Pro Se guests, I think. I think, I think so. Um, so <laughs> I think Andrew right. came on the show because there was a really interesting story out of North Carolina yeah. about a district attorney that was removed from office via this sort of obscure statute. And we kind of get into what that law is all about, and trouble it could cause down the road. So it was a good talk. It's a very interesting story. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, there's a lot of news to unpack. Um, the current Supreme Court term is going to wind down in the next month or so. Um, but uh, uh, next fall's Supreme Court term uh, got a whole lot more interesting this week um, with uh, this really interesting cert grant as the justices took up a potentially uh, bombshell uh, abortion rights case that uh, may well upend the landmark decision handed down in Roe v. Wade, um, which I think at least everyone is at least a little bit conversant on. It understandably drew a lot of eyeballs, a lot of attention uh, on uh, the, the, the court's sort of shifting analysis of abortion rights. Uh, and I thought it would be good to talk about this case and all the different factors that are at play here. There's probably an entire episode uh, of of conversation about the ramifications <laughs> from this case. But yeah. um, before we get to all that, let's sort of lay the groundwork for what is actually happening in this particular lawsuit. Yeah. So the case that we're talking about here is a case called Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. And it is a challenge to um, a 2018 uh, Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And that is roughly two months earlier than the, thre than the threshold that is currently enshrined in law through Roe v. Wade in 1973 and subsequent high court decisions, including uh, Planned Parenthood versus uh, Casey in 1992. Um, but the district court in this case in Mississippi and then the Fifth Circuit struck down this law, 
basically saying it is in clear contravention of Supreme Court precedent. Like I said, I mean, this this is a law that restricts abortions to 15 weeks. Current Supreme Court precedent puts it at about 23 to 24 weeks. So it's not that hard to see why they struck it down. They are bound by Supreme Court precedent in that regard. Um, and uh, you can see sort of how this teed up uh, a very easy uh, Supreme Court review. Yeah, uh, too easy almost. I mean, yeah, it maybe. really feels yeah. like this is one of those cases where, you know, abortion is such a hot topic and and pretty much all the action centers around what gets upheld or struck down by the Supreme Court. So this one seems like it was tailor made to get us there. Yeah, there's th- this is this is this is certainly one of those cases that is filed with the intention of getting it before the Supreme Court. That is, we've talked about cases in that regard in a number of other instances. This is firmly in that bucket. Um, and part of the reason for that is that, as most people probably know, the dynamics, the the sort of ideological dynamics of the court have shifted quite dramatically in the last several years. And now we, of course, have a six to three majority of Republican appointed justices. And so, you know, sort of pro-life advocates have been eager to get this question before this sort of, in their minds, freshly conservative court for a new review. Um, And as those shifts have come underway, there have been a number of states that have passed laws uh, imposing stricter abortion uh, 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 constraints in the hopes that it would sort of get before the court um, for for a number of sort of just like logistical reasons. Mississippi's 15 week abortion ban rose to the top of this crop and it is now before the court. And this really tees up a huge, um, you know, I will talk about the different ways it could go here, but it if you listen to sort of Supreme Court commentariat this week, it's a potential paradigm shift in the nation's laws governing uh, reproductive rights. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, what? how might this go? You sort of you laid out that the court is obviously, uh, you know, it has a different composition than yeah. it maybe did the last time it heard a big abortion case. How might this go? Yeah. And I think it's important, I think, to um, lay down exactly what the jurisprudence is. I mean, everyone sort of understands that Roe v. Wade is the bedrock uh, abortion rights case handed down in 1973, and that legalized abortions um, before 23 weeks of gestation, roughly. Then the Casey decision in 1992 um, affirmed that holding, but then also banned laws that placed an undue burden on those abortions. And so every sort of lawsuit that's bubbled up since then is on those margins about what constitutes an undue burden to those right. to those restraints, right? Um, this is kind of gets around that in that it hopes to just get right to the heart of the initial Roe decision anyway and sort of move the timeline back from 23 weeks to 15 weeks. Um one thing that court watchers have note have noted um, is that the timing of the cert grant has has drawn a lot of speculation. It was taken up um, about seven months after Justice Amy Coney Barrett was put on the court uh, last year. The court ha- uh, uh, struck down a Louisiana um, abortion uh, restriction law by a five to four margin. Roberts crossed the ideological line in that case. Since then, 
Barrett is now on the court. Um, some see the quickness of this grant after her appointment as an eagerness to, um, you know, sort of upend Roe and Casey. Um, others noted, though, that this 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 case was on the conference docket um, about a dozen times before they took it up, which some people took to mean that there might be some dissension within the conservative ranks uh, to actually take it up and put it and put it on the docket. But it is there now. Um, and like I say, I mean, this is a potential landmark decision um, that will certainly keep uh, court watchers and um, people on both sides of the abortion debate certainly on guard. For our second story, we're going to switch gears to a perhaps less sweeping uh, litigation story, but uh, nonetheless an interesting one. Yeah. Um, the fallout from the frenzy we saw in January dealing with uh, the stock market and meme trading and GameStop. <laughs> um, Love a good you- meme trading update, always from you especially, Bill. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I mean, we sort of joked about it at the time that yes. there were going to be a ton of lawsuits about this. Um, uh, but there have been so many lawsuits that uh, filed that we are now headed to multi-district litigation. Yes. So it's, um, I thought we would get everyone caught up on where the, the, the GameStop lawsuits are. Oh, I love that our prognostication about a gazillion lawsuits was exactly yeah, hey. right. <laughs> there's so many um, lawsuits that there's now functionally one lawsuit, an MDL. <laughs> yes. Tipped yeah. over the edge. Um, yeah. But Bill, I think maybe we just need a quick like, refresh for anybody that didn't follow along when we talked about it before what happened with all this meme trading i think a lot of people just sort of saw that there was a kerfuffle what maybe didn't touch down on what gave rise to all these lawsuits yeah it was definitely one of those stories where i think if you sort of if you didn't want to dip in you didn't have to it was just everyone <laughs> yeah. was just saying the word you GameStop stop a lot for two weeks and you <laughs> yeah. could just sort of skip yes. it um but in january a bunch of retail investors meaning you know, day traders, folks who do this as a side gig, um, not not Wall Street folks. Yeah, started investing very heavily in GameStop, which it's a, I don't need to tell anyone. It's a brick and mortar sort of mall store um, uh, in a industry <laughs> which is entirely you know digital at this point. So um, they had been in a death spiral for quite some time. Um, all this investing was egged on and sort of organized by Reddit boards and other online forums. Um, uh, the same folks later did this with s- similar effects with with other floundering companies, movie theater chains, um, BlackBerry. Uh, so <laughs> I kind of forgot bl- that honestly. That was whatever four <laughs> months ago, and I totally forgot about that part. Yeah, I had a BlackBerry until about 2012. It was <laughs> not a great phone. Anyway, um, so what happened uh, sort of broke the brains of the folks who run Wall Street. The, yeah. You had this fundamentally you had fundamentally unsound stocks that were skyrocketing irrationally, which a lot of people who want to perhaps regulate Wall Street more strictly took as a moment to say, well, the stock market is never quite rational. But um, you know, yeah. the the motives for these people were sort of uh, you know, hard to nail down, were they just nihilistically, you know, I think we when we talked about it the last time we referred to it as shit posting the the uh, Wall Street <laughs> yes. version of that yeah um, you know where they some of the, some of these people said they were trying to mess with these big hedge funds that had shorted these companies but as these wild swings uh, of the stock market went on um, 
stock trading platforms that these folks were using, most prominently Robinhood, um, put a a halt to new purchases of shares in GameStop and a number of these other companies that were subject to these spikes. Unsurprisingly, the stock then began to began to plunge just by basic sort of uh, you know m- market dynamics and. Um, at that point, the folks who were on the receiving end of these of these uh, swift falls were quite upset. So uh, they headed to court, which is what we talked about last time. But at the time, I think there were there were two lawsuits that had been filed. Yeah. So uh, now there's quite a few lawsuits, and as you said earlier, they've become an MDL. So I would imagine many of the claims are very similar. What exactly yeah. were they saying there? Yeah. The, there's there's. Uh, more than three dozen pending lawsuits are part of this MDL. They're, um, they were filed in 14 district, different districts around the country. There are 15 other cases that are similar and could be lumped in with this. So a lot. Um, and <laughs> yes. uh, as we've alluded to last month, the U.S. Uh, Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation, the group that decides the, this, you know, when there are enough of these cases in courts around the country and they're not, they're similar enough that they need to be consolidated yeah. they agreed last month to push this into a single mdl in miami federal court um the cases make a range of claims uh breach of contract breach of fiduciary duty negligence um plus a bunch of viol- so violations of antitrust law violations of securities law consumer protection laws um, some are sort of bare bones, you know. The the stock dropped; it was your fault. Uh, others <laughs> have more, you know, nefarious stories to tell that these platforms were trying to help the institutional investors. That they were, um, you know, they were sort of looking out for the Wall Street folks at the expense mm-hmm. of the Main Street folks. Um, Robinhood has flatly rejected that. They said that um, during a congressional hearing, they said they they in fact were trying to line up more collateral for t- you know the the volume that they were handling for these companies. Yep. Anyway, I love I love the irony of the Robin Hood name up against yeah. those claims. <laughs> yeah, I know. Of course, yes. Um so Robin Hood is named in the vast majority of these but um uh, Charles Schwab, which is another uh, consumer brokerage, TD Ameritrade, sort of the big names, um they're also named in some of these cases, but Robin Hood is really the focus. Uh th- Anytime you go to an MDL, that is sort of a signal that things are now that the whole point is to consolidate a bunch of common claims, of course. Um, but it is the beginning of a somewhat long process. I mean, have there been any even initial steps? Uh, where are we at here in this? This is a lot like like you say, there's this Congress of claims against this company. Uh, where are we at so far? Yeah, that's why we chose to dip in this week, because there were two sort of big steps that the judge overseeing the case took. Um, First, she divided the litigation into um, four tranches, four sort of buckets of claims. Mm -hmm. Um, They are, one, uh, state law claims against Robinhood, two, state law claims against the other brokerages, three, antitrust claims, and four, uh, federal securities law claims. So those will be the different ways that this is adjudicated. They will be lumped together. You know, similar facts will be, will be dealt with, um, en masse for those cases that, that have commonalities. Um, she also established a leadership structure for these cases going forward, appointed attorneys to fill the roles for many of these claims. Um, uh, which is a big deal for the the plaintiffs' firms that are handling these cases. Who gets to steer these big consolidated cases? Uh, the move won a lot of 
plaudits in the legal world this week because it was, um, amongst other things, it was a very uh, diverse group of people that yeah. were appointed to these leadership positions. Um, many women, many racially diverse, geographically diverse group of people were were put into these roles to steer this MDL. Um, uh, so yeah, so we're we're inching closer to um, you know some real litigation here. The the case obviously these are extremely complex to yeah. um from a procedural standpoint these mdls but um we will uh at some point in the next few months next few years figure out whether or not what these online platforms did in response to this this frenzy this mania um actually violated law so stay tuned Again, this week's Pro Se is brought to you by CaseFleet. Experience a better way to build winning cases with CaseFleet's case management software. CaseFleet provides lawyers with tools for reviewing evidence, organizing facts, and identifying trends that would otherwise remain hidden. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. An elected North Carolina district attorney was recently forced out of office via an obscure state law. Some say this was an instance of the law holding a DA accountable for ethical breaches, while others fear the state law could be employed to punish DAs for unpopular decisions that fall under their discretion. Here to tell us about this unusual ouster of an elected official is one of our editor-at-large at Law 360, Andrew Strickler. Andrew, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Thanks for having me. Always good to get into these sort of ethical quagmire stories with you because you have such a nice way of explaining them and they're very interesting. Before we get into the sort of particulars about this DA in North Carolina, I'd love to just hear about this unusual law because I'd never heard of this before. Okay, so North Carolina General Statute 7A66 is obscure by anybody's standards, including in North Carolina. And it's a very brief law that basically says to remove a county district attorney, uh, there are, uh, lays out some grounds for a removal. These are elected officials, I should point out. Yep. And um, it gives a brief description of a process in which a uh, petition and affidavit can be filed in a superior court in North Carolina. If the judge looks at it and decides that the allegations are sort of fall under the grounds, uh, there's a hearing. And the judge, if the judge finds that there was an issue of misconduct or one of the grounds, out the DA goes permanently removed from office. That's um, weird, right? I mean, I'm used to hearing things about elected officials getting removed with a more traditional like impeachment mechanism. Well, that is what's interesting about this is because the statute does act as an impeachment process for an elected official, which is a very serious matter, obviously. Uh, but it does so in a very brief, uh, a brief statute, a lot of wiggle room. And the way the law is written, it doesn't give a judge who gets one of these petitions really any discretion on what to do with the DA if they do find an issue of habitual in, uh, intemperance or one of the other grounds for removal. And tell me more about who can initiate this, because I know that's also a peculiarity of this North Carolina law. It is a peculiarity. Um, I should say there are a couple of other states that have similar statutes that uh, you know serve the same purpose. They're basically a quasi-impeachment of a local DA. 
Um, the North Carolina statute is pretty interesting, though, because it puts no limits at all on who can file the petition. You don't have to be a resident of the county that the DA covers, for example. You don't even have to be a resident of North Carolina. It makes no limitations on when a petition can be filed. It, you know, it doesn't say within 90 days of an alleged breach or anything like that. And again, it, it doesn't give a judge who is looking at this petition any wiggle room whatsoever on a sanction. If a judge does find a single grounds for removal, there's no lesser sanction. It has to be a removal. That's it. No settlement, no pleading down. You're out. This really sets up what could be sort of perfect storm type scenarios where, you know, you might have some outside influence. There's no wiggle room, as you say. Um, so now let's get into the actual story at hand about um, a DA named Greg Newman. What happened with his his case? And, and he ultimately is no longer a DA. Well, Greg Newman uh, was a private practice attorney uh, in south of Asheville. Uh, he was appointed by the then Republican governor in 2013. He was elected, twice reelected, um, and uh, he, his office covered three counties. And over the last eight or 10 years, there have been a number of people who have been very vocal critics of Mr. Newman. Uh, that's not unusual for DAs who tend to, you know, make a few enemies along the way as they prosecute crimes. Uh, but uh, in Mr. Newman's case, there had been a sort of popular groundswell of people who had uh, very personal problems with him, particularly in relation to decisions not to prosecute uh, people who had been involved in crimes against their family members. There was a, a young woman who had been a college student in North Carolina who uh, had complained very publicly about Newman's decision not to prosecute her alleged rapists at the college. And over the years, there had been a number of people who had, in court filings and then just in the press, um, accused him of corruption and malfeasance in office, basically. Um, those are those are all pretty serious, um, but so far, a lot of what you're describing until we get to potential uh, malfeasance here, but everything before that feels a lot like the kind of flack that DAs get from people who are unhappy about them ex executing their job. Where does the worm turn here? What what could he actually be thrown out for? Well, it, it sort of turned for him um, in a bar action. He was charged with uh, breaching ethical duties while in office. Uh, and the, the basis of that case, which ended at the end of last year, beginning of this year, uh, was an incident in which uh, he had been accused of lying to a court about a criminal case. And it basically came down to um, a situation where he had reached a misdemeanor plea deal with a man who had been accused of uh, an assault, a sexual assault on a child. And under North Carolina law, the victim uh, and the victim's family have a lot of rights in terms of being notified about hearings, in terms of going to court during hearings and talking about the impact of their crimes. Uh, this is a law a lot of states have. And essentially, uh, Mr. Newman was accused of 
lying to the judge by saying that this particular victim and their family was not interested in weighing in. They had been informed of this misdemeanor plea deal. And he was charged with breaking the rules around that and was ultimately found to have had broken those rules. Um, and those are very serious charges. Uh, and he essentially admitted during uh, the bar proceeding that he had uh, not informed the victim's family of this misdemeanor deal as he had proclaimed in court, uh, among other problems. Um, so that was sort of the basis um, when it came to a sanction for Mr. Newman, however, um, a bar hearing board decided to give him a stayed suspension. Basically, uh, okay. we're going to give you a three-year suspension, but as long as you stay out of trouble over the next three years, nothing's really going to happen to you. So he stayed in office. He had kept his bar license, active bar license, uh, kept his salary, and everything just goes on. That decision on his sanction really spurred another big round of complaints about Newman, including from people who had a lot of complaints about him that had nothing to do with this victim's rights issue. They had a Facebook group. They were talking to each other, family members of people who'd been accused rightly or wrongly of crimes or who'd had dealings with Newman's office. Um, in the end, one woman connected to one of these matters went to clerk of court with a signed affidavit, actually hired a process server. The woman doesn't even live in North Carolina, hired a process server to take uh, the signed affidavit to court in Henderson County, North Carolina, and seek his removal under this obscure statute. I, I think that's so interesting, Andrew, because in the beginning of you explaining all this, you really have me where I'm like, okay, the the bar proceeding did not, um, by some measure, many would say, did not adequately punish someone who'd clearly done something really wrong in his exercising his duties as DA. He didn't tell the um, victims and their and the victims' family about this plea deal. Um, so on the one hand, you start to think like, well, he should have been kicked out probably, but it gets a little murky here when it doesn't entirely turn on that. You have people outside the state coming in and agitating for this motion based on grievances that are completely unrelated. That's right. And it, it's a very interesting time uh, to be discussing this, of course, because in uh, the debate about criminal justice reform and all of um, and victims' rights and the greater rights that victims are being accorded in a lot of criminal proceedings, from one point of view, this statute gave people who felt they had very legitimate concerns with Mr. Newman that had not been dealt with by the bar, had not been dealt with in their own complaints to the state attorney general and these other forums. It gave them a chance to get up and testify about the problems that they had with them. Um, and yet you can question whether or not that was really the, um, uh, the, the purpose of the statute and whether or not that was really the proper form. Because again, you're talking about people whose personal uh, individual problems and experiences with Mr. Newman didn't necessarily intersect with what turned out to be the case that actually ended up getting him thrown out of office. So, you know, that's a, that's an interesting point. So Andrew, what do people think about how this shook out in North Carolina? Are there 
ethics experts or other attorneys or just concerned citizens who think, okay, are all of our DAs going to go through something like this? Because it's a very public example of how if people are upset, they can really push this forward under a law that really is very unusual compared to other jurisdictions. Well, I think there is some concern about it. I think, uh, you know, ethics uh, experts and attorneys in North Carolina are likely uh, rightly looking at that law, looking at the statute itself and saying, okay, this was not well written. <laughs> it's a very, <laughs> a very blunt law. It doesn't uh Go, it doesn't go to any length at all to explain really what the grounds are for these removals. It describes them in brief language. And it, again, it doesn't give the judge any discretion in terms of, um, of, of a sanction. It's removal or nothing. And that is the kind of thing that invites people to say, well, you know, we have a problem with this DA. Let's go search out a friendly judge. Let's go file a petition that looks good. And, and just see what happens. Um, and again, you're talking about elected officials. Uh, right. And this is not generally the way that democratic societies want people who have been elected by the citizens uh, to come in and out of office. But that is, in fact, what's uh, available in North Carolina. I should also say that this has only been used, the statute's been on the books in North Carolina 50 some odd years. This is only the third time that it's been successfully used, which in, depending on your point of view, is a good thing because obviously you don't want DAs committing malpractice or uh, ethical breaches and being dragged out of office, and you don't want you know you don't want people to have to go through this difficult right. process. On the other hand, it doesn't leave much case law when these questions do come up. How do you go back and define what really counts as misconduct under the statute? What are the rules and procedures? What are the due process questions that come up? And there's plenty when you're talking about, again, <laughs> you know, you have somebody who might not have any real interaction with the DA, any uh, individual uh, grievance or even knowledge of how a prosecutor goes about their job, filing a petition and saying, you know, Judge, we want you to look at this and we think there's grounds for their removal. Andrew, the more we talk about this, the more I'm confused about my feelings, because on the one hand, it really seems like um, for for the victims who were, um, you know, further victimized by not being able to have their say in court, it's probably good that Greg Newman ultimately was held accountable in this way. But it doesn't seem like a great precedent going forward about how this could be applied in the future. So I'm just sort of left wondering, how should I feel about this North Carolina situation? Well, it's a it's a good question, and I'm not sure I how I feel about it myself. Uh, a lot of the people who were involved in this matter, people who did have problems with Mr. Newman, obviously were very happy about this decision, and in particular, they were happy because it gave them an opportunity to keep it in the news. It gave yeah. some of them an opportunity to testify in open court uh, in a very sort of public forum that, uh, it, from their point of view put a light on uh, malfeasance and corruption that they've been trying to get attention to for a long time. On the other side, the law is a very blunt instrument. And from a statutory point of view, uh, there's definitely ways in which it could be misused, even if most people, I think, would it wasn't misused in the case of Mr. Newman, who, again, had been found uh, to have committed some very serious ethical breaches while in office. 
Andrew, I have a feeling we'll be talking about North Carolina in the future and this very law again. So happy to have had the lesson on how this all played out this time. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. in our show is something offbeat and I think we have a bit of an update this week. Yeah, I updated everyone earlier about the Robin Hood lawsuits and we are here with another <laughs> update about something we talked about previously. Bill Donnie um, on the update desk. That's, yes, that's me. Uh, uh, so we talked at the beginning of baseball season, so about six weeks ago, about yeah. a former Toronto Blue Jays pitcher who had sued the Houston Astros for allegedly ruining his career with their now sort of exposed cheating scandal. He has refiled uh, this lawsuit against the Astros, uh, only this time it has a very interesting wrinkle to it that he is claiming that the signs that his catcher was laying down for him during the game, that they were trade secrets that were stolen by the Astros. This, like... Sometimes I feel like a story, you know, you're the you're the front facing IP, the media entertainment guy. Sometimes I feel like a story conspires to demand your attention. And you also <laughs> love baseball, of course. So the idea that there's this, this this huge scandal anyway, then there's a lawsuit and now they'll 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 rope in some soft IP just to kind of needle you. <laughs> Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was tweeting about this, and you our were, friend, yeah. Our friend John, uh, former yes, Law Three Sixty, yes, yes, reporter, uh, reached out and was was chatting to us about it. Yeah, yeah. He he, I mean, you know, he he just wanted to know what you thought, and I think everybody wants to know what you think. Uh, not everybody's an expert in sort of tr- in the nuances of what is and is not a trade secret, uh, which we'll get into. But uh, what's it? What like? Let's let's kind of reset. What's going on here? So we broke the whole thing down a couple weeks ago. So go back and listen to that episode. Um, yeah. It was the April 1st episode. But in case you don't remember, the Astros used technology. They used cameras and a, a live feed to steal signs that a catcher is laying down for a pitcher yeah. in real time from opposing teams in 2017 and 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, they, of course, won the World Series in 2017. So it was a pretty big deal that they were doing this. Um, yes. Former MLB pitcher Mike Bolsinger uh, sued the team in early 2020, claiming that this had wrecked his career. He was specifically referring to an August 2017 game in which he allowed four runs in just one third of an inning. Uh, Mm -hmm. After that uh, horrible outing, he was sent back to the minors, never made it back to the show. It later came out when when this scandal was breaking that this was one of the games that was circulated where it was very clear in the yeah. video feeds. You could hear the um, the way they were signaling to the hitters. They were banging trash cans. It was very clear that that um, this scheme was being implemented during this game. Um, so Bolsinger sued in California state court last year for unfair business practices, negligence, intentional interference with contractual and economic relations, all the sort of catch-all claims that you might assume you'd see in a case like this. But in March, the judge overseeing the case dismissed it for jurisdictional shortcomings. This is what we were talking about last time. Yeah. Um, at one point, the judge suggested that Bolsinger was, was brought his case in California improperly just because he was trying to get um, Los Angeles citizens to be in his jury because the Astros beat the Dodgers in the 2017 World Series. 
it was uh, a very, <laughs> very interesting story. But um, but <laughs> yes. yeah, but now, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I remember feeling, you know, pretty sorry for Bolsinger. It just seemed like, yeah, I uh, somewhat plausible that he really had his career impacted by this cheating scandal. We've crossed a bridge too far for me, though, to get over to trade secrets. Yeah. So what exactly does he say? And uh, what do you make of it, Bill? Because to me, it just really raises an eyebrow. Yeah. I mean, like you, I feel for the guy. I mean, clearly he was, you know, it's it's unfair that this happened uh, to him. Whether that's, you know, tortiously unfair, I think, is, uh, sure. is, right. is the more important question, though. So. Yeah. Bolsinger, Bolsinger refiled his lawsuit in uh, Texas last week, and as I mentioned at the outset of the show, he's now making the somewhat remarkable claim that the these signs from his catcher to him were trade secrets, that they were the kind of things that you know are protected by businesses for information about your company that has economic value. So it's um, it's a very creative claim. I will say probably not a claim that's going to work. Um, okay. the, the the key to the key element to a trade secret is and and I don't mean this in like a glib way. I mean this in, in I'm, I'm sort of explaining it. It has to be kept secret. That is the you know the the, the two big things are that the, you you took efforts to keep something secret and you derived economic value from the fact that it was secret. It's right yeah. there in the um, name. Exactly. So you you can't really say that super easily about signs that are public you know in a broadcast we all see them we We, see them when we when we tune in every night (laughs) um they you know they change it up as time goes by but you can you know a guy on second base can see what the sign is so it's it's hard to argue that that's a secret also you know whether or not those signs are reused over time um I think there's also the question of who, even if these theoretical trade secrets, even if that was a viable claim, who owns them? Um, right. I, you yeah. Know, who has standing to sue over them? Sure. I'm pretty confident in saying that that would not be the pitcher himself, That um, <laughs> whether that's the team or whether that's... Yeah. It's just hard to imagine a scenario where he himself has this proprietary claim to this. So It would feel really weird if like... Um, a company put their barbecue sauce recipe on the bottle and then someone who was a chef there wanted to sue over another company using it. For sure. Um, yes. Uh, so, yeah. So, like I said, I, I feel for this guy. It's, it's you know, it's, I think we talked about it last time, but that, that you know, that this idea of getting just shelled and then finding out two years later that the team was famously cheating had to be a pretty terrible feeling, but I, much like the last lawsuit, I'm not sure that this one really has has legs. I I'm mulling a lawsuit about when I got burned in the freshman B team championship game against Conan High School in <laughs> 2000. Um, Great, sure. So from your career as a as a high school cornerback, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm yes. Uh, I'm I'm. Mulling my options. I don't know. I don't know if our defensive uh, alignment is is trade secrets. I'm going to consult with my not attorney, Bill Donahue, on that off the air. Really uh, nice to we'll hear that the intervening 20 years have not softened that blow for you. <laughs> yeah, not that I'm hanging on to it or anything. <laughs> not a but, bit. But uh, I'm, I'm mulling my options. Uh, and uh, so is Bolsinger. So, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, while you think that over and consult with Bill, I think we'll wrap up today's show. <laughs> yeah. want to thank you both for being here. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. And thank you, Bill. See you next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. 
our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Andrew Strickler, and our contributing reporters, Nathan Hale and Jeff Overly. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform that helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about the things we've talked about today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.